and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show... You're reacting to other players, you know, you want to get somewhere as fast as possible or you're reacting to ball moving in a particular direction. But there is also the theory that that can lead to a higher risk of injury. How the training of a netball player could be making them prone to injury and eradicating the stigma around chronic pain. That's coming up on Think Health. When you think of a pharmacist, your mind probably turns to the street corner chemist, where as a kid you got a bag of jelly beans after getting your flu shot. Now, while that is still true for some, the evolving role of the pharmacist could see them do more than hand over your prescription, but prescribe medications for you on the spot. Typically, that role has been left to general practitioners, but as consumer demand increases... The healthcare industry is looking for ways the pharmacist could operate as a middle figure between diagnosis and drug administration. Beata Bajoric is an associate professor in pharmacy at the University of Technology, Sydney, and her research is looking at how pharmacists could prescribe for hypertension, otherwise known as high blood pressure. So what exactly might a pharmacist prescribe to someone? Like, what role do they play? So it is about defining what is prescribing. Um, and you can get quite philosophical about this if you want to. Um, but you're right. Um, if you go into a pharmacy now, if you have something that's fairly common, like a common cold, the pharmacist will make a recommendation for treatment. It could be a cough syrup. It could just be some good old-fashioned home-based care, um, a cup of herbal tea. Um, in a sense, that is prescribing something. If we go to the um, other end, we're talking about more chronic conditions where somebody does require medication that perhaps needs a bit more monitoring around. And that's typically the sorts of things that a doctor would prescribe and generate a script for. When we talk about pharmacists prescribing, there's all sorts of models of how that could happen. So as a minimum, what the pharmacists do is they work collaboratively with the GPs um, or the hospital doctors, and they might be authorised to adjust medication regimens. So the doctor may determine what the initial treatment is and then hand over to the pharmacist to monitor that therapy. So they might actually be looking at, you know, test results, pathology results, and the pharmacist will do the dosage adjustments according to the person's response to treatment. The next step up from that is the pharmacist might be monitoring that response and say, actually, this medicine doesn't seem to be working. There are alternate options that might suit that person better. So the pharmacist might actually then change to another medication. So there's that through to what we call independent prescribing, where the pharmacist is fairly unrestricted in what they could prescribe. Um, they'd obviously be set up in a clinic scenario and they'd do some checks and then they would prescribe what's appropriate for the patient. We're looking at specialised areas where there's a need. So asthma management, blood pressure, high blood pressure and so on, or cholesterol management. 
And you'd mentioned high blood pressure before. Mm. High blood pressure is the layman's term for something called hypertension. Absolutely. And you were looking at the management of hypertension and how pharmacists can play a role Mm. in provision of more effective care. Why, without the pharmacist, does it seem that care is suboptimal? Well, we know from all the data that's out there currently that we have a high burden of cardiovascular disease, and that's fairly typical in most Western countries. Partly it's due to the ageing of the population, but we know there's lots of lifestyle issues. And one of the key risk factors tied to the lifestyle issues is hypertension, so high blood pressure. And if that's not managed well, you are going to get this burden of cardiovascular disease and this mortality associated with it. So heart attacks and strokes and so on. Uh, When studies have been done and they've tried to drill down into the root causes, hypertension is probably the most common risk factor for that whole sequelae of events. And we've seen that whilst patients do present to a doctor and they do get the diagnosis and treatment is initiated, 50% of them don't actually adhere to that regimen. Why not? It's a few things. One is that by the time they've actually gone through all of those diagnostic processes, I think both the GP and the patient are a little bit worn out with all of that. So it's quite an achievement to get to the diagnosis um, and initiate that treatment. And then the prospect of going on to a medication that's going to be lifelong, especially if it's the first time you've had to use lifelong medicines, can be quite overwhelming. So there's a lot of, I guess, patient confusion. They're overwhelmed by information and it is quite a task to commit to something over the long term and in general practice we know the doctors don't have the capacity to see all the patients they want to so consultations tend to be quite short. So what's been explored at the moment is what are the alternate ways that we can still ensure that a patient gets that diagnosis through the doctor But then as the follow-on, once they've had time to process that information and they've moved on to the next step of getting their medicines, what can we do to provide some value at that point of care? And they're coming obviously to the pharmacist to get things dispensed. So what can we do in that pharmacy space that will allow the patient to get the information Uh, the right amount of counselling, but also that ongoing support where they can be monitored um, through blood pressure checks in the pharmacy and also have their doses adjusted through the pharmacist prescribing. Why don't we do this already? There's a number of reasons. One is... Pharmacist prescribing is a new concept in Australia and because it is a new concept, Practitioners Australia are not quite familiar with what a pharmacist might be able to do in this space. So there's been a lot of learning from overseas models and becoming familiar with that um, and looking to the research that's been done to see how it works and how effective it is. And I think too, it's about what the patient wants. And, you know, we've been very careful in Australia to make sure that we understand what the patient needs are. Would this be an acceptable model of care for them? Um, Would they be happy for a pharmacist to be engaged in that management in that way? Uh, So we have done some work in that space and patients are really quite accepting of it. They appreciate the conveniences of it. And also patients generally have a very good rapport with their local pharmacy. Mm. Uh, We're quite lucky in Australia in that the health system is set up in a way that allows people to establish those relationships. 
And what about training pharmacists to be able to provide this service? Because of the study in which I initially contacted you about, yeah. you were looking at, I guess, like a select group of pharmacists who felt that they would be confident to be able yeah. to provide that care. It said most, so were some thinking they weren't confident to be able to do that? Yeah. This, as you have pointed out, is a very um, select group of pharmacists. So they've done quite a lot of training to drill down to medication-related problems, think about how to optimise prescribing And they're also very experienced in communicating with doctors about prescribing decisions. So we asked them to consider a number of scenarios, some typical ones um, where patients would present with various problems with their high blood pressure management. And we asked them, you know, if this was your patient and you had unrestricted prescribing rights, what would you do in terms of managing them? And the responses were quite amazing. They provide us with a lot more detail than we anticipated. Um, they were very holistic in their approach to management. So it wasn't just about prescribing a medicine. They looked at what lifestyle interventions they could recommend or prescribe to a patient, what sort of additional assessment would be required in terms of diagnostic tests, and then what considerations they would make in terms of choosing a medicine if that was the pathway they were going to go down. And is that because they have that vocabulary already? They kind of know what medications or therapies would work for the management of hypertension? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. They're tending to see people who are older with lots of medicines and very complex regimens. And hypertension is almost always going to be in the mix there. So as you say, they do have the vocabulary. And they're generating some treatment recommendations. So they're effectively saying to the doctor, here's what we would recommend that you prescribe to make this better for this individual. What's missing in that step is actually generating that prescription that goes out to a person that allows them to go and get their medicines dispensed. So they're prime candidates for actually looking at a prescribing wrong. What we would be looking for is pharmacists to identify or focus on uh, where we do have health gaps so that they can focus on special areas or what we call therapeutic areas. High blood pressure is one of them, diabetes. So if we could get some pharmacists to, you know, upskill in those specialties, I think we can do a lot of good there. Beata Bajoric, Associate Professor in Pharmacy in the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health. I'm Jake Morkham. Up until recently, fibromyalgia was thought of as a medical mystery. The chronic pain disorder causes widespread and chronic pain throughout the body, where even the slightest touch can be sensitive. However, with 2 to 5% of the developed world estimated to be living with fibromyalgia, the condition has a long history of stigma, with some calling the disorder psychosomatic, made up, or all in your head. Miles Herbert spoke with Bernadette Fitzgibbon, neuroscientist from Monash University, about feeling the pain of this unexplained condition. It can vary substantially. So pain itself is an individual experience. For some people, the best way to describe it is probably the impact it has. So that getting out of the bed, someone can't get out of the bed, they're in complete agony. For other people, they can get out of the bed and get moving, but it's just this constant painful feeling throughout the day. So this is something that's pretty pervasive in their lives. It kind of affects them all the time. 
Absolutely, yes. You talk about it as a pain disorder, but it's one that in particular has symptoms that target multiple facets of an individual. Pain is the primary identifying symptom, but it also has very significant impact on someone's fatigue levels. It impacts their sleep, ability to engage and maintain work when it's severe. It can result in difficulties in social functioning because of some of those symptoms as well. So it's quite a diffuse disorder in terms of the impact it can have on someone's life. Do these things kind of compound? If someone isn't sleeping because of the pain, does that then make the pain worse? Absolutely. And then it might make the fatigue worse and the symptoms impact upon each other. You may start with severe pain. It can then generate more fatigue. The fatigue influences your ability to have good quality sleep. Bad sleep, you might get headaches. Headaches, you might get the fibro fog flare. So it does have a cumulative effect. So where does it come from? Where does this pain come from? That is one of the issues with fibromyalgia is that for a long time, no one really knew what was causing it and no one knows what is the cause of it still. The most evidence exists for at the moment that may be at least driving the pain of fibromyalgia is what's identified as central sensitization, uh, which essentially describes when uh, cells in the brain become hypersensitive And in the case of central sensitization, these cells are hypersensitive in the brain's pain network. So the brain is always heightened to pain information and that it could be driving the fibro. There's other reasons as well. There has been links to hormone changes. And in some cases, that's thought to maybe underpin why there's a gender difference in particular for fibro. So it is generally more common in females. There's a number of other links to what might be related to the onset or exacerbation of fibromyalgia. So, for example, fibromyalgia is linked to stressful events or a trauma. It could be linked to an illness. So sometimes people become unwell, even glandular fever, for example, and they go on to develop fibro not long after, as well as repetitive injuries. So if you have a number of pain injuries, you can develop this. So it's not just genetic? No. And the answer to what causes fibromyalgia is not clear. So far, there's relationships about what's happening in someone's body in the central brain level. There is definitely something going on, but we don't know what's causing it. Does this lack of an understanding around what causes fibromyalgia lead to misdiagnosis in patients? Yes, absolutely. So with fibromyalgia, as you picked up on, it's a stigmatized disorder, which has had an unfortunate impact on a lot of people that live with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Because of the stigma around fibro, it can take some time to get a diagnosis. And in that time, you, depending on the clinician that you see, you may be told that it's something that is not real. If you've identified perhaps that you've had a previous trauma, say in your childhood, you may be indicated that you have a psychologically based disorder and you may end up being a psychologist when a treatment for fibromyalgia is multidisciplinary and you would need to see a range of relevant professionals.
that stigma, that idea that it's psychosomatic and people might be making it up. You said that it influenced the way it's treated. If you walk mm. into a health professional, they might give you treatment along the lines of antidepressants or treat it as a mental illness. You know, can you talk mm. to me a little bit about that? Fibromyalgia is linked to a number of other disorders. Some of them include mood and anxiety. So you have someone coming into a psychiatrist, for example, and they report fatigue, low mood. They might mention that they uh, have had a history of trauma. This is a picture that's looking like depression, but unless that pain is spoken about, there might not be a trigger in someone's mind, but also pain, somatic experience is linked to psychiatric illness as well. So without a really thorough assessment and a thorough conversation, it can be difficult to tease apart some of the disorders that fibromyalgia co-occurs with. So what comes first in those cases? Is it pain causing depression or could it be depression causing pain? Excellent question and one I often ask myself and it seems to be dependent on the person. So for some people, Depression can be in someone's life for a very long time and then the fibromyalgia starts. In others, the fibro is what starts first and then the major depression. Mm. Is this a case that no matter what comes first, the pain does cause the depression to be worse and sometimes the depression can cause the pain to be worse? I think that's 100% correct. Both can exacerbate the other, but it's also important to note that not everybody with fibromyalgia will have depression and not everyone with depression will have fibromyalgia or pain. There's such a huge variability in experience and I think that really highlights into the stigma we spoke about earlier as two patients or two individuals who have fibromyalgia don't necessarily look the same. For me, sometimes this pain can be so debilitating. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to interact with other people. For the patients that you've worked with, does this affect not just their work and their lives, but also their relationships? Absolutely. I hate to bring it back again, but that stigma. So when you have a partnership and you've been together 10 years and in the last five, your life has changed because you've developed fibromyalgia. Now that partnership ultimately changes as well. And that support that is easy to give when it's say six weeks because someone's had an injury, when it starts getting longer and longer and longer, even the most supportive partner can find it challenging. And they may not always understand it. And they may sometimes snap and get frustrated and want you to be better. And that can cause problems in that relationship or with the parent and the child relationship as well. Sometimes it's hard to provide support if you can't see or you don't understand why someone is so unwell. Bernadette Fitzgibbon, neuroscientist from Monash University, talking to Miles Herbert. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. A stiff knee might make you a better netball player, but it also leaves you open to injury. That comes from Libby Pickering Rodriguez, a netball player and lecturer in exercise and sports science at the University of Technology, Sydney. But when you might describe your neck as stiff after a poor night's sleep, Libby says stiffness takes on a new meaning in the world of sport. 
Stiffness, contrary to what most people think, um, colloquially you'll say, oh, I've got a stiff neck, I've got a stiff back. Stiffness in sports science actually looks at how a deformable body... What do you mean by deformable? So it is able to compress or stretch something that is elastic in nature. Stiffness is measured as the ratio of applied force to change in length. So if you're thinking of a muscle or a soft tissue in the body, we apply forces when we contract our muscles or when we land or when we walk and we look at how that um, muscle or that tissue responds to the force that is applied. So how much does it stretch or how much does it compress in response to the force that is applied? So in very basic terms, a very stiff tissue and applied force will not deform that tissue very much. So there won't be too much compression or elongation. Whereas we call the opposite of stiffness compliance. So a compliant tissue, if there is an applied force, it will either stretch a lot or it will compress a lot. Like a loose limb. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one way in which we measure stiffness is to basically model the whole lower body or one leg as a spring. A A spring. spring. Yeah. So if you think of a spring like a metal coil, if you have a tightly coiled spring, if you press that down and let go, it's going to bounce up nice and high in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a loosely coiled spring, which would represent a more compliant system, so less stiff, if you apply a force and let, let go, it's not going to spring up with as much vigor. So we would think in theory that a stiffer spring or a stiffer tissue should be able to compress and recoil more efficiently and also you should be able to jump higher and run faster, change direction quicker. But the other thing we have to think about, if you um, have that tightly coiled spring, if you coil it too much, it's going to break. So a stiff spring is ideal in terms of performance, but it also makes you susceptible to injury. Correct. Well, in theory, yes. There are some other movements, slower movements, where it may be more beneficial to actually have a greater degree of stretch. So a slow movement such as bench press or controlled jumps or a squat or something like that. Obviously, slow movements like that are not really relevant to team sports scenarios. You're reacting to other players, you know, you want to get somewhere as fast as possible or you're reacting to a ball moving in a particular direction or anything like that. But as we said earlier, there is also the theory that that can lead to a higher risk of injury. So it's about finding the question that is not necessarily answered yet is what is the optimal level of stiffness? In terms of, you were talking about it's the lower half of the body. Do you train stiffness into netball players? Yeah, so different athletes, just anecdotally, seem to have different sort of natural levels of stiffness. So some people will be naturally more stiff than others. So can you train for it? Potentially, if you train to increase strength, then you could increase stiffness but it's sort of um, still up in the air as to the best way to increase or decrease stiffness. The studies that have looked at increasing stiffness have shown that um, strength 
training increases stiffness, but in particular plyometric training. And what's that? So that is your dynamic strength training. So lots of quick hopping and jumping. In terms of decreasing stiffness, that is not yet proven in terms of if we identify that high stiffness is going to lead to injury or how do we decrease stiffness without stopping training, that's yet to be determined, unfortunately. Why don't you think we've got there yet? Because I think that we're looking at athletes. Athletes want to perform well and there has been a relationship between increasing strength and increasing stiffness So you're probably not going to get an Mm. athlete that wants to decrease strength. And potentially decrease performance. Yeah. So it will be a little bit more tricky to find how we can maintain a level of strength and reduce stiffness. In practice, how do we find that optimal level of stiffness? How would we do that? How would we? Ideally, we'd like to look at testing the leg as a system and we do that with what's called the vertical hop test um, where you basically hop on a force plate and then we do a bunch of calculations afterwards. We could look at individual muscle stiffness. So we've got a little device called the myoton which is a myometer and it applies a force just to one particular muscle, even one section of the muscle. In an ideal world we want a large sample We want access to them frequently so we can monitor how their stiffness changes and we want to do, you know, a battery of stiffness tests. And ultimately so you can keep players on the court as long as you can without injury. Yeah, the thing about stiffness is that it can affect performance and it can affect injury risk. So we want them to be performing optimally but we want to have as low a possible injury risk. So that's where it's really finding that balance Because if we find the optimal level, in inverted commas, and that might be a number or a range, it might be relative to a person, there are ways in which we can fairly easily monitor stiffness if we know those values. Libby Pickering-Rodriguez, lecturer in exercise and sports science in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us get discovered. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next week.